23-34, and that states, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. So looking here, kind of a little bit of background, we see that um, Jesus was accused of instilling rebellion, or trying to instill rebellion. He was arrested, he was put on trial, he was flogged, sentenced to death, and crucified. Justice, right? That's what we want. We want justice. We seek justice. I think we would agree on that. But there's an issue. Because during that process, at the end of the trial, Pilate states in Luke 23, 15, clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Jesus was an innocent man. And despite this, the religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the crowd, the mob, uh, demanded his crucifixion. And so, in complying with that, Pilate sentences to crucifixion. He was crucified between two criminals with a sign above his head that read, King of the Jews. And Jesus' response to this, this injustice, was to pray and ask the Father that they would all be forgiven. So, looking at this, there's two things that we need to consider. Our part, and how we fit into this situation, this picture, and God's character. So the first thing is us. And you think, again, an injustice, an innocent man put on trial and accused and put to death. That's not something that we see as good or just. And that's what happened to Christ. Um, and we'd probably feel really negative toward the people who did this to him. What wretched people to do such a thing to, to Christ, to an innocent man. What a wretched people to sin, correct? Now, that's us. That's who we are. We are the sinners. We take part by being the sinners in this story. And that can come in many forms. We can love possessions and wealth and betray Jesus. We can fear man and deny Jesus. We can be cowards and not stand up for Jesus. We can seek power and call for his death. We can be wise in our own, mind, in our own eyes and, and mock him. And we can be unrepentant and want Jesus to save us on our own terms. So that's who we are. That's how we fit into this. But I think more importantly is looking at God's character. Who is God in this whole picture? So looking at the verse again, Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. I'm going to break this up into three parts. Uh, the first part is Jesus' response, his initial response. What does he do when all, this thing, all these things are happening to him? He prays. He calls out to the Father. He's in pain. He's bleeding. He's suffering. He's on the cross. And he calls out to the Father in distress. And that should be our, our default stance. That's how we should be. When things are happening, whether they're good, bad, no matter how we see these thing, things in our life, we should come to God in prayer. That should be our initial response in all things. And it's a, it's, it's a display of our trust in God and our dependence on Him and the willingness for us to seek His will, not our own. Now the second part, we see Jesus was falsely accused. He was beaten, flogged, and insulted by the crowd. Yet He prays that they be forgiven. So He's praying to God. He's coming to the Father. And what's He praying? He's praying for forgiveness for the people that are doing this to Him. 
And earlier, Jesus had prayed for himself. He was praying that the Father take the cup of wrath from him. And Jesus accepted what the Father's answer was, and he's doing the Lord's will. He's doing the Father's will. Uh, now, in this instance, now he's praying for others. He's praying for the people that are out there. But you need to consider these people. Uh, these are the people who have abused and sentenced Christ to death. They crucified him. And we may consider these people to be enemies of God. Yet, Jesus prays for them. He prays for their forgiveness. That they may have access to the Father and possibly salvation. In their wickedness, Jesus prays for their good. Likewise, we should be forgiving. We should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That we may be children of our Father in heaven. Not, not only is he praying to the Father, not only is he praying for the forgiveness, but look at the state, the condition of the crowd. They're sinning. They're rejecting Jesus. They are ignorant. Jesus says in his prayer, they do not know what they are doing. Sin blinds us to what we do, to who we are. The crowd mocked Jesus as God's son, the Messiah, the King of Israel, who saved others but could not save himself. And in reality, they were stating the truth, but they didn't believe it. They didn't accept it. In reality, Jesus was, he didn't save himself in order to die for us. He sacrificed himself unselfishly, sacrificed himself for us. So understand that your ignorance does not save you. It is not a reasonable justification for rejecting God since Jesus prayed for our ignorance to be forgiven. Therefore, we should grow in the knowledge of God and be saved by faith in Christ, living a life of repentance. Now, before anyone knew of Jesus, before we became Christians, may have had a doubt and rejected Christ. And in that unbelief, Christ acts on our behalf. His goodness led to our repentance. Even now, if we know Jesus, we do not know him as we ought to know him because we still sin. Even as mature Christians, we're ignorant in our sin. So whether unconscious or conscious, we still sin. And that's why Jesus states, we do not know what we are doing. We're ignorant and we sin. We reject and rebel against God. Even in this state of unbelief and lacking proper knowledge of Jesus, we should ask the Father, Jesus asked the Father to forgive us. As Christians with the knowledge of Christ, we should abide in Christ, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no plans to satisfy the, earthly, the fleshly desires for the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. Now, where is the justice and how is this good? So, God has forgiven us. Okay. Uh, in our deepest, darkest sin, God initiates reconciliation by forgiving us. He shows us his love, goodness, and grace by his mercy in taking our place on the cross and taking God's wrath, which we deserved. We are cleared of our debt and have nothing to prove to Christ. He just asks us to accept his gift that he's given in faith. So he seeks our repentance that we may come to trust in him. God would have been justified in leaving us dead in our sin, and it is what we deserve. But Jesus, without anger, without bitterness or frustration, hanging on that cross, gently and in love, asking the Father to forgive us. That was his action toward us. So Christ forgives us in our state of weakness 
that we should that and that itself should lead us to love him in return. Come on, Brother Ben. Let's come up here. He's our deacon. And um, we're still in Luke chapter 23. We're going to pick it up at 32. And the saying is in verse 43. So as we look to the uh, second one of Jesus' last sayings, follow along. As I read just a little bit further along from where Marcelino left off, uh, Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. And if you're following on in the Pew Bibles, it's there on page 938. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell ins- began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, and this was Jesus' saying from, from this passage, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So I want us to take one main idea, and we have three points to take from this main idea. The main idea being God opens our eyes to see. And God opens our eyes to see three things. He opens our eyes to see Jesus, he opens our eyes to see ourselves, and he opens our eyes to see our reward. See Jesus, to see ourselves, and to see our reward. So first point, see Jesus. In this story, we see two criminals, one portrayed as proud, the other as humble. However, in Matthew's and Mark's accounts, we see that both actually had proud hearts prior to this in response to Jesus. Matthew 27:44 says, "In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him." So what happened? God softened one of the criminals' hearts to the point of repentance. We see in Luke 23:40 that this humbled criminal actually rebukes the other criminal. Instead of, instead of continuing to swim along this hell-bound current and insult King Jesus, God enabled him to swim upstream, go against the, go against the flow, disassociate himself from these individuals that were mocking him, including the criminal, the other criminal who was mocking him. Also in verse 40, the humbled criminal says, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? God opened the criminal's eyes, and only then was he able to recognize that Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. The book of Proverbs speaks much about the blessings that come with fearing the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7. Fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, Proverbs 8.13. And fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14.27. In John 14.6, Jesus says that he is the source of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
We all want life, wouldn't you agree? So we all need to see Jesus. Go to the source of life, which is in the person of Jesus. And we need God to help us to see Jesus. Jesus brings freedom. Freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, and freedom from the presence of sin. If you're not a Christian here, ask God to open your eyes to see Jesus so that you too can be saved from sin's penalty, eternal separation from God under his wrath. For the Christians here, we too need to see Jesus. We have been saved by God's grace from the penalty of sin, but we need to see Jesus in order to be saved from the power of sin, the daily power of sin in our lives. So we're all in need of having God to open our eyes to see Jesus. We're also all in need of God to open our eyes to see ourselves, which is point number two. The story gives us a picture of two criminals. Which would you say you most identify with? The humble criminal or the proud one? The one who's stopped complaining or the one who continues? The one who sees he's rightfully condemned, as we see in verse 41, or the one who overlooks his own sin, telling Jesus to save yourself and us. In verse 39, the one who sees his lowly position, desperate for God's grace and praying for it, or the one who is foolishly self-reliant. The one who sees their spiritual bankruptcy, or the one who thinks they're independently wealthy from a spiritual standpoint. The one who has faith in the midst of suffering there on the cross, like the criminal who's there on the cross, or the one who grumbles through it. PJ once challenged us that as we read the Bible, we need to see ourselves as the villain. Do you see yourself in the unrepentant criminal? We mock, we are proud, we complain. This is who we are. We are sinful. And our sin separates us from a holy and a just God. Seeing Jesus also means seeing ourselves just as we are, sinners. And while this is the bad news, we are the bad news, Jesus is the good news. There was nothing that the humbled criminal could do to save himself. And there is nothing that we can do either. Like the criminal, we need God to open our eyes so that we can see Jesus, and we need God to see God to open our eyes so we can see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior, Jesus. So we need God to open our eyes to see Jesus. We need God to open our eyes to see ourselves. And for our third and final point, we need God to open our eyes to see our reward. So what is this reward that is talked about in verse 43. Well, it's to be with King Jesus forever in paradise. And we get a glimpse of what this paradise is in Revelation 22. And it's essentially, it's a curse-free Garden of Eden-like home for believers. And Jesus tells the criminal, today 
Not tomorrow, not having to wait in some kind of purgatory. We are immediately in paradise and not waiting around. And this is all because of God's grace. He is our reward. Paradise wouldn't be paradise if there wasn't Jesus. There is no such thing as too much Jesus. Our hearts should always be longing for more of Jesus, and in eternity it will always be more of Jesus. Filled to the brim, overflowing constantly, a life of more, more of Jesus without sin. And this is what we have to look forward to. That is our paradise. Now open your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, and our brother Miguel, pastor of Grace Covenant Community Church, will come and do our five-minute devotion. Uh, Good evening, folks. It's a pleasure to be here on this evening where we observe and mourn for a moment the death of the Son of God, but only for a moment. You see, at this time in John chapter 19, we find that Jesus is at the threshold of death. His body is racked with agony, having been flogged until the flesh of his back was cut to ribbons. Blood pouring from the inch-deep wounds on his head, the crown of thorns had cut into his scalp, his life draining from him slowly, agonizingly. But Jesus thinks of his people. And we see it radiate in concentric circles as we read, from the immediate to the eternal. And the first person he thinks of here When we look at these sayings, and I might step on a few toes to mention the other ones just for the sake of the symmetry of the message here. (laughs) Jesus thinks of his mother first, and he says here in uh, John 19, 25, and then we'll read up to 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, And Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And it seems to me that there is a double meaning here. For you see, Mary had already known that she herself would be pierced to the heart at the sight of her child when she first spoke to the priest at the temple when she first found out that she was pregnant. And at this time, she finally sees this fully realized, perhaps not having anticipated the enormity of the pain she would be experiencing at this moment. And so Jesus tells him, Behold, look, this is your son. Talking of himself, perhaps, And talking also of the man that would end up taking care of her in her old age. Though at this time, 
Old age was pretty young. She might have been in her 50s. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. For you see, Jesus is selfless to the last. And he provides to the last. Upon his dying breath, Jesus thought not of himself, thought not of the agony he was experiencing, the excruciating pain as his torn back rubbed against that rough tree every time he drew a breath. Instead, he thought of his mother, who will take care of my mom? And he looked down and saw that loyal follower of his, his best, closest friend, at least according to John, (laughs) and said, take care of my mom. Jesus' provision is selfless for us, and we see this. If I were preaching on this whole chapter, I would go on to talk about the way he provides for the immediate moment of fulfilling Scripture in verses 28 and 29 and 30, showing that he has completed the work, and then following Jesus' death, he even then in his sovereign control over all things, assures that his work is done, assures that the prophecy is fulfilled so that scripture is tied up in a bow here, culminating everything that has occurred in human history up to this point so that it happens precisely as God has said, even from Genesis 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 15. Yes, he has been crushed for our iniquities. He has been pierced for our transgressions. But Jesus thought of his mom, too. Brother, friend, you are not forgotten. You are not left on the side of the road of the great bus of Christianity. You are not a detail that is left behind. You too have been thought of. You too have been considered. You too have been embraced. Do you think yourself unthought of? Do you think yourself unloved? Do you think yourself unobserved by God? That is not so. Oh, he sees your sin. Oh, he sees your blasphemy. Oh, he sees your heresy. But brother, he has grace for you. And friend, he has salvation for you. For just as Jesus' mom was also thought of, so too were you thought of on that cross. Thank you. Our next text is from Matthew 27. So go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And our brother John Kim will come. Matthew 27, verse 46. Good evening. Uh, 
Please turn with me to Matthew 27, and I'll be reading just the immediate context around verse 46, where we find the saying, starting in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard, heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. We'll stop there. My God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? This is perhaps one of the most emotional and raw moments in the crucifixion of Christ. And interestingly, as I was listening to the previous brothers speak, the only one that comes in the form of a question. This is Jesus' raw outpouring of sorrow and grief. And he really doesn't know how to perhaps handle it in some ways at this point. The father leaves the son to bear the full weight of wrath from the father and to bear the world's sin upon his shoulders. A few observations about the setting um, kind of leading into this saying of Christ. In verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So there was darkness from the noon hour to 3 p.m. And I don't know the last time I've witnessed something that crazy happen, but imagining going out for lunch and all of a sudden there's darkness over the land. This is the created order fundamentally being interrupted by an event that would change history forever. This was obviously an extremely unusual event, but just think for a second how significant this very moment was. Here we have Jesus. Jesus was sinless, not deserving punishment of any kind, but here we have him enduring the most devastating of all punishments that man has ever known. And not just from a physical standpoint, but we're talking about real and true abandonment by God, his, his own Father. So when the creator of the world turns his back on his perfect son, it's strangely fitting that the natural world would be turned upside down at this moment. After Christ utters this saying, there's a contrast to the response of the bystanders you get this dull response by the bystanders thinking only in their limited earthly mindset when they're standing in darkness at 1 p.m. They say, this man is calling on Elijah, a greater prophet than the man that's hanging on the cross. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him and give him a drink. They're trapped in their, their mindset. They can't get out of thinking that this was just a man who claimed to be the Son of God, but really isn't. So getting to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus' cry comes in the form of a question, quoting from Psalm 22, which, where we'll find the exact same phrase. When you're in the depths of sorrow, sometimes all you can do is cry, why? And you might even know the answer, but even if you know the answer, it doesn't take the, away the bitterness of pain in that moment. Jesus' cry was one of anguish, one of desperation. It wasn't one of resentment or rebellion against his father. We know fully well that Jesus went willingly to the cross as a sheep to the slaughter. It's the desperate cry of a child to his father, expressing the extreme pain of being abandoned, yet fully knowing the reason for why he suffers. My God, Jesus says that twice, my God, my God. Jesus doesn't forsake the relationship that he has with his father. He doesn't become any less his father's son in this moment. And even in the moment of his deepest sorrow, he still holds on to the reality that God is his father, but he sees the justice of his father in full force. He says, why have you forsaken me? The forsaking is real. As we knew, as, as, and as Jesus knew, the payment for the world's sins would require the full experience of God's wrath on his shoulders. So in contrast to what we read in Psalm 22, when the psalmist cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't just an expression of how he feels, like God has left him, but this is a real picture of what's actually happening, God's actual abandonment of his beloved son. So every question needs to have an answer, and we can praise God that, that Jesus knew full well the answer, even as he asked this question. And you can almost read the answer as you read this, this passage, the answer is, you're bearing the punishment on behalf of all hell-deserving sinners. Even in this heart-wrenching cry of Jesus, there's hope buried in his wounds because we knew and we know why he was forsaken. We know the promise of his death on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin." Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It should have been us on the cross feeling the wrath of God's judgment. It should have been you and me, but it was Jesus that took our place. Jesus was forsaken for you and for me so that we can draw near to the Father. Now turn your Bible to John 19, John chapter 19, verse 28, and our brother John Lee will come. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 19, verse 28. John 19. Verse 28, which says this. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. 
So he fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Jesus says, I'm thirsty, or I thirst. The main idea of this passage is this. Trust Jesus' intentional suffering for you. Trust Jesus' intentional suffering for you. I have three points. You may be curious as to how I get three points from two words, but bear with me. Firstly, Jesus suffers. Jesus suffers. Two, Jesus suffers intentionally. Jesus suffers intentionally. And three, Jesus suffers intentionally for us. Jesus suffers intentionally for us. Jesus has hung on the cross now for three hours. And as he nears the end of his life, he says, I'm thirsty or I thirst. An important note to realize when he says that I thirst or that I'm thirsty is that Jesus Christ was human. You may think that's a moot point that's obvious from the text, John. Well, John, the Apostle John, when he wrote this book, is writing to address heresy in the church. And one of those heresies was this idea of Gnosticism, that what is material or substance is bad, and what is spiritual or immaterial is good. So when you think about God coming to engage the earth, God is pure and holy and good, so the idea of a God becoming material doesn't quite make sense in that system. So some false teachers arise in the church, and they begin to teach that Jesus, if he must be fully God, then he can't quite be fully man. Because if he were to be fully man, then that would mean that he has some impurity with him. That he must not be fully good, and that can't be true. Therefore, God the Son, Jesus Christ, must not be fully man. Which means that as he suffers on the cross, he must not suffer fully. He has a visage. He, he gives a veneer of humanity. But he can't really suffer because he doesn't have a body. Brothers and sisters, Jesus suffered truly. When Jesus says that he thirsts, there are biological, physical reasons why he suffers. He's been flogged 39 times. He's lost the majority of his body fluid. And as blood dribbles down the sides of his body as he hangs on the cross... The weight of his body fills his lungs with blood and water. In order to survive, he must press upon the nails on his ankles and the nails through his wrists and bring his body up for a breath before he sinks down again. And as his his lungs fill with blood again, he must push himself back up in order to muster another breath. Again and again and again. For three hours, Jesus suffers truly. We must not undercut the suffering of our Savior, for sin bears true consequence. 
It requires true physical, experiential suffering. And Jesus suffers in your place too. Jesus suffers intentionally. If you look in verse 28, he says that when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. While Jesus says that he's thirsty, he doesn't merely say that he's thirsty because he's thirsty. He actually says that he's thirsty in order to fulfill scripture. I don't have time to turn there, but in Psalm 69, verse 21, it says that the Savior, while he's suffering, while he's alone, will receive hyssop and sour wine or vinegar. Jesus, knowing this truth from the Old Testament, says that he's thirsty so that the Roman guards may offer him sour wine that's mixed with vinegar for him to drink. Jesus, while he suffers, doesn't suffer without purpose. He knows exactly while he's there, why he's there. And even while he hangs, even while he bears the full brunt of God's wrath, Jesus is in complete control. He knows exactly what is happening. He knows exactly what must happen in order for Scripture to be fulfilled. And he says that he's thirsty so that he may drink sour vinegar. And thirdly, Jesus suffers intentionally for us. Jesus suffers intentionally for us. Have you ever heard Jesus talk about thirst? Is there any time when Jesus teaches that he talks about being thirsty? Turn with me to John chapter 6. Turn back a couple pages in your Bible to John chapter 6. Going to look at verse 35. John 6, 35. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Christ becomes thirsty so that we may never thirst again. If you're a non-Christian here tonight, you may find life to have left your mouth dry. You indulge in the pleasures of this world and you find yourself to still be parched. And I would like to tell you that you may pursue different things for the entirety of your life and you will still find yourself to be dry, to be looking for refreshment. And this is the good news, that Christ becomes thirsty so that we may never thirst again. Church, more than your physical needs, more than the immediate trials of your life, you have a deeper need. You have a deeper thirst. And Christ fulfills that thirst for you. So when you hear your brothers and sisters suffering, when your brothers and sisters in Christ undergo trials or become weighed down by the storms of this life, and find themselves wandering in the wilderness, you point them to the fountain of life in Christ. He fulfills the need 
that we have. Jesus says, I'm thirsty, so that we may never thirst again. Well, Brother Chris, come up here. We're going to continue in John 19. Go back to John 19. And the very next verse where John left off, um, Chris is going to pick it up right there. Good evening. Like Peter said, I'm going to be going over John 19.30, so if you would follow with me, John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. These are the words that Jesus spoke before he gave up his spirit. And I want to just take a quick moment to ask you, what was finished? Was it that finally the pain of being flogged, mocked, betrayed, gone? What was finished? What I want to do is just explain really quickly the scene moments before Jesus died and observe some applications for us from this passage. The chapter begins with Jesus, who was just beaten, standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, the temple servants, the chief priests, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish people, and others. And here, there was something happening that was so wrong and so dreadful, but completely necessary. In their midst stood a true king, Jesus Many people in the crowd did not recognize him as a true king. And so there was some dialogue between Pilate and the Jews and Jesus. So Pilate was going back and forth, talking between the Jewish crowd and Jesus, unsure if this man was truly guilty. Everyone here thought that he was a guilty man. But eventually with the pressure of the Jews and Pilate's unbelief, he handed Jesus over to them to be hung on the cross. Jesus hung there, taking on the complete wrath of God. And after knowing that his time was coming near to die, they quenched his thirst with a sour wine so he could speak and he uttered the words, It is finished. What did Jesus finish? What Jesus finished in that very moment was God's plan to save a people from the penalty of sin and eternal damnation in hell. Jesus hung on that cross taking on the punishment that we deserve. Picture that. A perfect, sinless king taking on the punishment that we deserve so that we would be accepted by God. 
and this plan is finished. This short phrase has implication for many of us tonight. For Christians, this means that we are to recognize that the true king has laid down his life and finished the work for you. The true king died for you, and it was only a true king, God himself, that could finish the work for you. What about our church? What about BBC or all the churches that are here with us tonight? What is God telling us? I would say together, very similarly, we recognize the true king when others around you choose not to. This is who we are as a church. We are followers of Jesus. We remind each other to look to the king who finished the work for us. And lastly, if you're not a Christian, this also applies to you. I want to tell you that we all know that life is not always easy. And yes, there is suffering in the world. But this king that I'm talking about has suffered more than you can know. He is a king that can sympathize with you and a king who loves you. So are you going to trust this king who is all-powerful and all-loving? Let's remember what Christ has finished for us. Finally, let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Luke chapter 23, verse 46 says this. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Friends, you are going to die. And I don't know if you've ever felt the bone-chilling fears of facing the unknown, sleepless nights as you think about the future, but you are going to die. It's going to be unlike anything you have ever experienced before. Your heart and your pulse will begin to still. Your breath will become shallow. Your mind will begin to dim. And you will die. Christ, here, suffering on the cross, has reached his end. And as he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I entrust 
my spirit. So here's a lesson for us tonight. To entrust your spirit in the hands of the Father. Entrust your spirit into the hands of the Father. Christ has borne the full wrath of God. And after he says that it is finished, he dies confident in his Father. How do I know that? Well, the only other time that he addresses the Father as he hangs on the cross is when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's a subject and there is a verb. God has forsaken the Son. He has poured out His wrath on His Son. He has punished His Son severely for the sins of the world. And now Jesus, at the end of His suffering, says, Father, into Your hands I entrust My Spirit. Jesus goes from bearing the wrath of of God and wailing out in distress to trusting the arms of his father. This is good news for us. That means for all of us who have felt the fear of death, if we trust in Christ, we who are in Christ will never be forsaken. We will never have to see God as a, as a judge who pours out his wrath upon us. But God, when he sees us, sees us as a loving father who sees us righteous through the blood of his son. And that means that even though Christ suffered his way to his death, we can approach death with joy. Entrusting our spirits to our father as we give our lives into his arms through the blood of his son. Christ trusts his father as he dies on the cross, and we can trust the goodness and sufficiency of his blood as we entrust our spirit to our father as well. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your brilliant plan in sending your Son to die for us. Thank you that Jesus bears the full wrath of God upon his shoulders. Thank you that he bears the punishment that we could never bear. Thank you that he was forsaken for our sake. And God, we thank you that you in your Loving kindness, extend your arms to us and that we can trust you as we face the waves of death. In Jesus' name, amen.